0: Well, church, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Zephaniah, and uh, we'll be concluding this morning our, our little three-week series in this wonderful passage, powerful passage of Scripture, and you'll find that on page 790 if you want to use the Pew Bible, Zephaniah, and we'll begin in chapter 3 and verse, verse 8 this morning. Let me ask you a question before we look at the Scripture, and I want you to think about this for just a moment. Um, when God thinks about you, what does He think? So when, when when God brings you to mind, maybe in a word, what do you think God thinks? Got something? Some of you might have thought um, disappointed. When God thinks of me, He's disappointed. Maybe some of you thought, when God thinks of me, uh, he's frustrated. And I I want you to understand this morning, kind of the, the thrust of this sermon, because of the thrust of this passage, is that when God thinks of you, if you are in Christ, he thinks of you with delight. He thinks of you with gladness. So much so, even as the choir just testified, when God thinks of you and I and his people, he sings, he shouts, and his heart overflows with joy. Which is not to say that God is not grieved by our sin. We don't want to minimize that. But like any any loving parent will be grieved about sin. When God thinks of you, He rejoices. And so let that be the banner over which, uh, or that flies over this sermon and this passage as we consider this wonderful. Uh, truth in Scripture found in Zephaniah chapter 3, beginning in verse 8. Hear now the Word of God. Therefore wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey. For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy all the earth shall be consumed. For at that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve Him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshippers, the daughters of my dispersed ones shall bring my offering. On that day, you shall not be put to shame, because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me, For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain, but I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue, for they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said unto Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let your hands not grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst. A mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will Quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors and I will save the lame and gather the outcast and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you in. At that time, when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. Let it be so, our Father, we read these words of hope and promise, and I believe in our hearts, some for us loudly, some perhaps just a quiet whisper, we who are in Christ say, let it be so. Oh, how we long for this day this coming day, this crowning day when our salvation shall be complete. It is not yet complete today. We are saved and yet we are being saved and we will one day be saved. And so we pray, Father, during the day in which we live as we wait for the coming day, that we shall live in light of these truths that we have not yet experienced and they shall be for us a strong foundation upon which to stand and a strong hope in our heart. It would be powerful that we would be transformed more and more into the image of Christ. Do that even now. Through your word we pray. In Christ's name, amen. It was in uh, 1995 when the uh, Hubble Telescope first discovered the most luminous star in the Milky Way galaxy. It's the Pistol Star. Pistol Star is 10 million times more powerful than our sun. It's 100 times bigger than our sun. So if you put the Pistol Star where our star is, Earth in its orbit would be inside the star. It's that massive. It is unbelievably more powerful and, and, and incredibly more luminous than our sun, our star in our solar system. Not all stars are of equal majesty. All all are wonderful, all are incredible, all are amazing works of God, yet some are more luminous than others. Same can be said, I think, of Scripture. All Scriptures, you hear me tell you at least on a monthly basis, is breathed out by God and therefore useful. And yet, some Scripture shines with a greater radiance. Some scripture more clearly displays the majesty of our God. And I think Zephaniah chapter 3 is such a passage. Some have considered this passage to be the Revelation 21 of the Old Testament. That after describing great trials and tribulations and divine judgments, we're finally given an amazing picture of what life will, with God will one day be like once that day of judgment has passed. Others have considered Zephaniah 3.17 to be the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. We're just off by one verse. It is such a brilliant display and declaration of God's love for us. If it was not in the Bible, we would not believe it to be true. We shake our minds in wondrous disbelief thinking, can this really be? This is, of course, in this passage, a description of salvation. It is not a description of what we have been saved from. Zephaniah chapter 1 and chapter 2 do a good job explaining what it is we have been saved from. This now is a description of what we are saved to. What is is promised to us? What What is the aim of God's salvation? Why did God save you? What's the goal of your redemption? Well, here it is. And it is so amazing that in chapter 1, God in judgment says that we should be filled with silent awe. Be silent before the judging Lord, we are told. And now we find in chapter 3, in verse 14, that that silence is to be replaced with jubilant shouts. Only then in verse 17, to once be quieted in, in that time, not out of fear of God's wrath, but at wonder in God's love for us. Zephaniah, perhaps, is the most painful book in Scripture. It is, as, as we've saw over the last two weeks, it just seems to be one body blow after another, and God announces this day of the Lord when He will, quote, utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth. Even there in verse 8, we start with that He will pour out upon the earth His burning anger, for in the fire of His jealousy, all the earth will be consumed or reminded of the the pain of God's judgment, the terror of God's judgment, but we come to the end of the day of the Lord and we realize, well, God is not simply leaving the earth bare, but He is bringing a new earth. He is bringing a new fellowship that we have yet to experience with Him. And we are here now given one of the most awesome descriptions of not only God's judging anger, but one of the most moving descriptions of His saving love, I think found anywhere In Scripture. And so we look at this saving love that Zephaniah proclaims today in three parts, the coming redemption, the coming rejoicing, and the coming Redeemer on this great crowning day. Consider first with me that Zephaniah speaks about the redemption that is coming. He explains it in a couple ways. One, it seems to be he emphasizes that we will be gathered together, as you see in verse 9. For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve Him with one accord. And so uh, we, some of what we're going to read in this passage was fulfilled when the Jewish exiles returned from Babylon to Jerusalem, but that was simply a foreshadow of the ultimate day of, the, of fulfillment. And God there, as you even see in verse 9, He intends to save the nations, or as Zephaniah puts it, the peoples. Right? The ethne, the ethnicities. God is going to save all the peoples. This is a fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, which of course was just the new covenant in a very kernel, small form, when God promises to bless all the nations through the seed of Abraham. And so God, we, what we already see here is that God is not simply content to judge the nations in wrath, but he will be Lord over the nations in love. In fact, uh, to every nation. As you see in verse 10, he writes, From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughters of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. Now for the third time, Zephaniah has mentioned Cush, or what we would today call Ethiopia. And and that's given as a representative of the distant lands. Now you remember, Zephaniah is part Cushite, right? And so I think he is in some sense saying, my ancestors too shall on this day be incorporated amongst the people of God. Many suggest this is why we're reading along in the book of Acts, and all of a sudden we're following the story of the church growing, and all of a sudden we get to this what seems to be kind of uh, out of place story. I think it's in Acts 8, where we have Philip and this Ethiopian eunuch And this Ethiopian eunuch comes to faith and then Philip is gone and the eunuch is gone and we never hear of either ever again. And some suggest that what Luke is doing by inserting that story is showing us the beginning of the fulfillment of Zephaniah's prophecy found here in chapter 3, verse 10. That the community of God's people will be a multi-ethnic people who with pure speech call upon the name of the Lord. Notice he's going to change their speech. God has to change our speech. He began this at Pentecost there in Acts chapter 2 when the barriers of all the many languages were miraculously bridged by the, the wonderful work of God so that God could take the gospel to the nations. So he brings the nations to Jerusalem and then he equips the church to take the gospel to them. He changed their speech. And what we see here is a reversal of God's judgment on the Tower of Babel. Now some of you, VBS is what? Six weeks away. Something like that? Amen? Right? Okay. (laughs) You're already exhausted for VBS preparation. 130 kids already signed up. The theme, I think, is the Tower of Babel. Tower of Babel. Babel was when God confused all the languages, remember? So that the people could not unite in defiance to God. Now in Christ, Babel is reversed at Pentecost so that the nations now can unite, not in defiance, but what? In worship. They will, what, bring my offering, he says in verse 10. They shall call on the name of the Lord there in verse 9. And they will worship him, and not only worship him, but they will serve him. You see at the end of verse 9, serve him with one accord. Right? And remember, this is the nations in unity, in one accord. Think today about how much discord there is. I'm 44 years old. It seems to me there is more discord today than there has been in any year of my life. There is discord in homes. There is discord in relationships. There is discord in the church. Not this church, praise God, right? Maybe, I don't know. Discord in our own hearts. People drawing lines. This is my group. That's your group. We don't like you. We like us. We're all separated because of the discord. How much harm has come from that discord? How much harm has come from poorly spoken words, families torn in two, churches torn in two, right? In fact, one of the gifts of social media is allow is, has given us wonderful opportunities to scream and shout and say things we would never actually ever think about saying to someone face-to-face. But now from the distance of social media, I could be as ugly as I want to be, right? And so, listen, if you're looking for a reason to get enraged, just spend some time on social media. Because you'll find uh, reasons to, to yell and find other people yelling. And, and you take social media and you put an election on top of it, right? and you get false arguments and lies about people for some reason we call opponents, right? And, 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 and it, it just fuels the outrage. There's so much outrage today, so many people yelling, there's so much discord today. When Christ returns, discord ends forever, ever. In your heart, in between people, you'll never see it again. We'll have to talk about what was that Discord. That we used to have. What was that disunity? It will be gone. The nations will serve God in one accord. United in worship and service. And I think, despite the growing discord, it is, it is happening today throughout the world. As God works through Hamilton Baptist Church and millions of other faithful, gospel believing churches throughout this world, when they sacrifice and pray and go that they might reach every tongue and people and nation for Christ with the gospel. That's why we support uh, our missionary friends there in the Middle East. They're going to a people who don't know Christ. Our God will not be denied a people to call upon his name and to serve him. He will gather them and on that coming day he will transform them Look at verse 11. On that day you shall not be put to shame, he says, because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. Okay? So on that day we'll be vindicated. The shame will be gone. Right? All the guilt from God's people will melt away. No longer shall so many people be crippled by the psychological effects of sin upon their life, whether the sin they've committed or sin committed to them. It will be gone. There will be no more shame. On that day we'll be humble. Read on in verse 11. Then I will remove from your midst the proudly exalted ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. For I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly, and they shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. We've seen this throughout Zephaniah. Humility, humility, humility is what God is after. We come to Christ. If you come to Christ, you have to be humble. Coming to Christ is not an act of pride. It's an act of humility. It's a declaration. I can't fix my problem. I can't get ahead of my sin. It's dominating me. And you are broken. And you come to a crucified, risen God, and you say, forgive me. Have mercy on me. I yield my life to you. That is an act of humility. So Christian, beware of a creeping and growing proud heart. Beware of walking with a swagger. God might just break your hip. Because he does not look kindly to people stealing his glory. Say, I'm smarter than other people. I'm more athletic than other people. I'm better looking than other people. Well, why? All that's God's gift to you. All that you have comes from his hands. Do not take credit for it. Do not steal God's glory. Give him thanks in humility. Praise his name for what he has done in your life. It'll just be a place of humility. Shame's gone. And on that day, we will be truthful. Verse 13 Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue, for they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. No more lies, no more deceit, no more posturing and hypocrisy. Instead, what? Peace and security. We're going to graze, we're going to lie down. You notice the connection, by the way. God takes away sin, what comes in its place? Peace, restfulness, grazing and pasture land and lying down. So when he removes sin, what we will know is what we have supposed to know, that that we'll know God's peace resting in him. In the place of discord, you'll have united worship. Right In the place of lies, you'll only have truth. In the place of pride, you'll have a humble spirit. And, And all there will be is a redeemed people Who are gathered in a place Jesus calls paradise to enjoy the blessings of God and will do it in unity and joy. You see, joy? Because there will be great rejoicing. So we think about the coming redemption. Now, secondly, think about the coming rejoicing, the joy that will be in our heart. Here it is, verse 14. So you want, where where are the commands in this scripture? Where's the, the obvious application? Okay, here it is, verse 14. Here's the the exhortation. Here are the imperatives. This is what you are to do. This is how you are to obey in light of all he says. Ready? Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. So all the redemption leads to an eruption of celebration. Sing, shout, rejoice be jubilant. He's just piling up every word he can for for the expression of joy, right? This is what we're to do. Why? Well, we just saw a bunch of reasons, but he's going to give us more. Three reasons now, verse 15, for unrestrained joy. So maybe, listen, maybe you don't feel like shouting. Some of you don't feel like shouting. Some of you don't feel like singing. Some of you don't have joy in your heart right now, sitting here. I give you the triple reason why joy should be in your heart and a song shall be on your lips. Look at this, verse 15. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. No condemnation. And, 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 and read that verse in light of the entire book of Zephaniah. All the judgments we've seen in Zephaniah, all the wrath, all the terror, all the fire, all all, all the condemnation for you, Christian, is gone. It's gone. I mean, that's what he says, right? The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. Whose judgments? His judgments. He says, I've taken it away. All the punishment has been removed. The lawbreaker has been pardoned. He has taken the noose off your neck and brought you home as his child. For Christ has taken our place. He has endured our judgment. Christ has drained the cup of God's wrath against you and me down to the very bottom. And God is not, will not be forever angry towards you. It's not because you don't sin. He is grieved by your sin. But all of his anger has been poured out on your substitute. Namely, Jesus. Therefore, there is no judgment that remains. I've taken it away. You ought, therefore, to shout and sing. Thank you and rejoice. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, has been nailed to the cross. I bear it. No more response. What is it? Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. No condemnation. Another one? No enemies. Look what he says. Read on verse 15. "He has cleared away your enemies. There no more enemy on this day. There's nothing to steal your joy. There's no one to rob your happiness. That ought to lead to singing. You know the first song ever sung in Scripture? It's Exodus 15, first song ever sung by the people of God, Exodus 15. Remember what it was happening? The people of God had hidden under the blood of the Lamb. The wrath of God had passed over them because God saw that there was a substitute in their place. God had led them through the waters of judgment, defeating their enemies. They reached the other side of the shore of the Red Sea, and we read these words The Lord saved Israel, and they sang. They sang. So we are just stop here and sing. Because their enemy was defeated. Do we have an enemy? Yeah. we got a lot of enemies perhaps, but we got one major one. And it's the devil, the Bible tells us, and the devil will be sent away forever and ever and ever and never trouble you again. Judgments removed, enemies defeated. That ought to be enough to bring a little bit of celebration to that heart of yours. One more reason. Read on in verse 15. The King of Israel, the Lord is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. No condemnation, no enemies, no fear. No fear. The King will come. The King will come to those who have turned their back on Him and, and, and worshipped idols, namely you and I. And He'll gather us together. He's going to change us and then come to us and be with us and we'll never, we'll never fear again. I, don't, I can't even imagine what that would be like. Imagine never having the slightest fear at all. No fear of any kind. No fear of sickness. No fear of man. No fear of death. No fear of punishment. No fear that someone's actually going to find you out and who you truly are, discover what you do. and in the pre- No fear at all in the presence of the King of Israel. Right? And so we, we wait for all this to come we look forward to it but in many ways it's here now isn't it is not god gathering the people's now is he not changing our speech now is he not having us serve him in one accord now right has our enemy not been disarmed now have the judgments not been removed from us now is he not even this moment this right now is he not in our midst yeah so how do we respond We're going to grow weak and discouraged, as verse 16 seems to suggest. On that day it shall be said of Jerusalem, fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. I mean, do we yawn at God's presence? Do we shrug our shoulders at the gospel? Or do we shout? Do we celebrate? Evidently, according to the Bible, the the appropriate response to the redemptive work of God through Christ is to celebrate. Right? To sing for joy. That's what it says. It is to shout loudly. This is why we're given these truths, that we have every reason to to praise God. And so let me just ask you for a moment before we move on. When's the last time, now some of you already get into this, I appreciate that, but when's the last time for some of you, you've ever shouted in reference to your Christianity? Right? And something about your relationship with God and something came out of your mouth, and then someone else looked at you and said, hey, that was a shout. You just shouted. Right? Because, you know, you know what, I mean, verse 14, was does it say? It says, shout, shout. I'm not making it up. That's what God, that's God's command. And so let's, let's just, I mean, we're already getting going, but let's just try a little experiment here, okay? You okay? want go for it? Let's see what happens. I don't know what's going to happen, so God help us, ready? I, I'm going I'm to read a truth. Okay, And if you believe it, you shout amen. Okay? No Ready? All right. Thank you, Jeff. Okay. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. Amen. He has cleared away your enemies. Amen. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. Amen. amen. All right. Well, it's like Baptist coastal in here. All right. This is fantastic, right? Now, I wonder if that was everyone. Some say, maybe, maybe not. I'm not going to shout. I won't do it. I don't shout. Just want you to understand that if you will not obey today, Christian, one day God will compel your obedience. One day you will shout whether you want to or not. When this is all fully complete, try as you may. You will not be able not to shout. Some, some of you don't realize there was an ice storm that happened this winter. It didn't hit the valley, but it hit us pretty hard up on the mountain. And I, I, had, to, um, I had to chainsaw my way out in the morning and chainsaw my way in in the evening and then repeat that the next day because trees were falling all over the place. And I remember I was coming to work one morning and I am there's a tree in the road and so I got the chainsaw out and my work clothes on and, and so I'm you know trying to operate this chainsaw and I hear this cracking and I look above me and there's this very large limb coated with about three-quarters inch of ice and it is cracking and breaking and it is going to fall on my head. And and so here I am with the chainsaw and I and I look up and I turn to run, right? And I'm on ice, so my feet are moving at a quick pace, uh, but my body is not moving any direction, uh, really. And so I'm, it's like a cartoon character. And I'm trying to run and try not to cut off my leg at the same time. And why this is all happening, I hear someone shouting. Someone's shouting. And it's just like time had slowed down. You ever been in one of these, like, time had slowed down? And I'm thinking, while I'm doing this, I think, who's shouting? And then I realize it's me. <laughs> <laughs> That's, I'm shouting. I don't remember telling myself to shout. It just came out of me. It was an uncontrollable response to fear. Right? I'm telling you, one day you will have an uncontrollable response to joy. And you won't be able to hold it in when the sobs of anguish and the boastings of man are swept away in joyful song. And as great as our joy will be, As great as our joy will be, your joy in salvation pales in comparison to the joy God has in saving you. Consider thirdly the coming Redeemer. We've seen the coming redemption. We've seen the coming rejoicing. Now let's cast our eyes upon God Himself. And we see You see his heart here. This is why this is such a wonderful passage. You think, okay, so just forget forget you've read Zephaniah 3, and you think, what will God think on that day when all the nations are gathered before him? All his. So God, God has done his saving work. The day of the Lord has come. Christ has returned. All God's people are gathered before him. What will God think? Will he be disappointed? Will God say, is this it? Will God say, you know, well, with what I had to work with, this ain't bad. What 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 will what will his heart be? The answer is in verse 17. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one to save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. So when you and I are gathered before God with the hundreds of millions of the redeemed from all over the world, from all time, God will rejoice, God will be glad, God will exult, God will sing over you. In fact, think about these phrases Notice the coming Redeemer enjoys saving you. God enjoys saving you. Verse 17 says, The Lord is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. So now God is pictured as a warrior, a mighty one who will overpower our enemies to save us, the enemies of sin in our own heart, our enemies of death. You realize Jesus Jesus kicked death in the teeth. He said, "You don't, Your bony hand can't hold me. And up he came. And he has defeated our last and great enemy, namely death. And if he could do that, and he's for you, what can oppose you? What can stop him from doing what he wants in your life? He is a mighty one to save. And beyond that, it's just not that he saves. I want you to, this is, what, this is Zephaniah's contribution to scripture. God enjoys saving he enjoys saving you. The Bible says, for the joy, this is the book of Hebrews, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Christ enjoys saving. He gets great pleasure to this very day in saving. Right? Don't, do you not rejoice when someone is saved? Right? I mean, it's just, there's nothing better, right? When someone you're close to, someone you've been witnessing to. And they come to Christ, and they yield their life to Christ, and you know now they're a brother or sister in Christ. There is, there is no greater joy than that. The apostle Paul said, I have no greater joy than seeing my children walk in the truth. Well, how much more God who actually does the saving? Right? We're just watching. Okay? God's the one who's actually doing it. Is he thinking, okay, all right, just another name written in the book of life? Is he just checking a box? Okay, there's another one. No. The Bible tells us there's a celebration in heaven. Does Jesus not say there is more joy in heaven when one sinner repents than the 99 who, who need no repentance? Joy in heaven over salvation. And so God does not look at you and say, I saved you begrudgingly. I saved you reluctantly. Well, if I, if I must save you, I guess I will. It's not like a teenager who a parent asks to go clean the room. Okay, if I must, if I have to. That is not the heart of God. God says, I did this because I wanted you to be mine forever and ever and ever because I love you. You can, look at this, you can bring pleasure to God, therefore, by being saved today. I just just want you to, you may may be here not a Christian, you may not become a Christian today, but I just want you to think this rational thought, this, this propositional statement. The God of heaven and earth can be brought joy from little you if you would receive his son as your savior. He would delight to save you today. I mean, Zephaniah, read on verse 17. Does he not say he will rejoice over you with gladness? He'll rejoice over you with gladness. This reminds me of the prodigal son who returns. Remember, while he was still a long way off, the father saw him, the father loved him, the father ran to him, the father embraced him, the father kissed him. Right? And what is Jesus trying to do? Describe the heart of God in salvation right do you have christian do you have a dull god do you have a professional god right is your god up in heaven wearing like a sweater vest with a you know nice smile on his face and just kind of you know placid kind of easygoing god that's not the god of the bible right the god of the bible is full of joy He's full of celebration. He's passionate. We've seen this after He burns in anger towards the wicked, and he rejoices in gladness over the forgiven. I love what Spurgeon said. He says, you are happy when you are forgiven, but he who forgives is happier. The prodigal son who came back home was very happy to see his father, but not as delighted as his father was to see him. The father's heart was more full of joy because his heart was larger than the sun's. So you are glad when God forgives you, but you are not as glad as God is when he forgives you. God's heart is bigger than ours. And because of Christ, God's heart is completely towards us. And so we should get rid of any thought in our mind that God admits us into his presence because Jesus has found some loophole right? And he's kind of twisting the father's arm behind his back, and he says, oh, I know you don't want to do this, but if I do this, will you do this? And God says, I guess if you really want to go through. That's not it. It has been the eternal plan of God to send the son to come and redeem us because the father delights in saving. He's put a ring on your finger. He put a robe on your shoulder. He said, let's kill the fatted calf because my daughter has come home. My son has come home. In fact, Isaiah uses the language as a bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall God rejoice over you. I don't know how many times I've had the privilege to stand next to a groom when his bride walks down the aisle. She's like a princess, right? Everybody stands in her honor. And there she is. And I, I, I always look at the groom. Don't you look at the groom? right? And his face turns red. And his eyes well with tears, right? And he gets a little wobbly, doesn't he? It's this disbelief. Can she truly be mine? Right? You have that image? That's how God thinks of you, according to the book of Isaiah. As a groom rejoices in his bride, so God rejoices over you. Now, you might think, okay, that's a little too much. That seems unfitting for our God. It's undignified for God to get carried away so much. I don't know what to say other than just read the Bible. Because that's what it says. Now, I want to be clear. God's not rejoicing in us because we complete some lack in God. Right? So we could press the metaphor, Isaiah's metaphor, too far. That 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 you know you're you're excited the bride's coming because you're really lonely and you and you really you know you you need her for a hundred different reasons and so you're super happy for for all these reasons that she's yours. She's completing a lack in you, right? Amen. Amen. Right. she completes complete a lack in me, that's for sure. Okay? God's not th- no, that's not why God is full of joy. God is full of joy because not not because we make up something that he is diminished in him, but because we are his handiwork. We are his workmanship. Uh, Paul says in Ephesians, we are the workmanship of Christ, and so would it be undignified for Michelangelo when he finishes the Sistine Chapel to step back and gaze upon what he has done, and let there be joy and celebration in his heart? No, you, you know that I'm, a, I'm, a, and I'm I'm two years into my my treehouse project, right? right? <laughs> I got some rafters up. It's, uh, we're, we're making progress but I am 40 feet in the air, okay? So it's a little intimidating up there, and it's up in three trees, and it's got three decks, and it's just way, way too big, okay? And uh, and one day, uh, God willing, I will finish this thing. And uh, I, I will step back, and when that thing is done, I will rejoice, right? I'll rejoice in this incredible gift for my children. I'll rejoice that it's done, right? I'll rejoice if it stays up in the trees. Right? Right? I'll be rejoicing, right? not because the treehouse makes up for a lack in me, but it's, a, it's something that I, it's my workmanship. Well, you you are Christ's workmanship, and so it's not an unfitting. For God to rejoice in the finished work of redemption when millions and millions and millions are gathered before his throne perfectly holy, God will rejoice over us with all his heart. Because not only does God rejoice in saving you, he, God, God enjoys loving you. Look, what does it say in verse 17? He will quiet you by his love. Right? His love will silence all, all your objections. It will silence all your longings. His love will silence all your troubles is us. Pastor Sam Storms, who uses a metaphor to describe this verse. He says it's like a mother with a, with a crying baby. And the mom goes into the nursery and she, she picks up the baby and she presses the baby against her chest and she, she speaks soothing words to the baby, maybe sings a soothing song and pats the baby on the back and the baby becomes quieted in her love, Right? Her touch, her voice bring tranquility to this troubled child. And how does the mom feel? Right? She's pleased, right? She, if she's anything like my wife, she looks at me with a grin and says, see what I did that you cannot do, right? <laughs> yeah? okay. God delights in calming us down. In His love, He delights in our fears and our hardships, losing their hold on us when we contemplate His love. And some of you, some of you experiences. You come, in, you ever come into church and you're anxious, and you're troubled, and you're weary. You don't feel much joy in your heart. Ever been like that? Yeah. And has any time while you're worshiping with God's people and you're, you're listening to, you're praying, you're listening to the word read, you're, you're, you're hearing someone explain the word, and the troubles of your life lose their hold on you. They kind of fade away. God is doing that. God is quieting your troubled heart in his love. Now, this, this little phrase here is, is a tricky phrase to translate. So some of you have the, maybe have the King James Version here you say, that's not what it says. It doesn't say he'll quiet you in his love. The King James says, he, he will be quiet in his love. Okay? And so we're not, we're not exactly sure how to translate this phrase, but many scholars think it's intentionally ambiguous because Zephaniah is driving at both meanings. That, that not, not just that God's quieting you in his love, but God. think about this, God will be rendered speechless in his love over his people. And so maybe if I could use the metaphor of a mom and a child one more time. This time, um, the mom has put the baby to bed, and she's had a very long day, right? She's exhausted and weary and and just frustrated, right? And so I know you ladies are going to have to imagine this. Just stretch your imagination a little bit, okay? Just just beats. And you walk by the nursery, and you think, I'm just going to take one little look before I go to bed. And you open that door and you see that little monster sound asleep in peace, right? Okay? And you think, what? I'm so thankful for this child. Right? And the frustrations of the day, they fade away as you stand there, as you look down in love. What if we would lay down at night and think my God draws near to me even though I'm a little monster, right? And He looks on me in joy in loving me. To think of a God Almighty contemplating His love for people like us. And it just, it quiets Him. It's almost too much to understand. And 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 it's, I I want you to understand it's just not that God loves you. He enjoys loving you. So many think, okay, God is totally disappointed in me, right? And, and when he thinks of me up in heaven, he sighs, and he folds his arm, and then he shakes his head. And when we pray, he says, oh, it's you again. Really? Okay? That's not the biblical picture, the biblical picture is that God enjoys pouring out love upon you. you think, some of you think, okay, yeah, I get God loves me, but he doesn't like me, he doesn't enjoy me, he endures me, he puts up with me. That's not what it says. It says he rejoices over you. It says he will quiet you in his love, and then lastly, he will exult over you with loud singing. God enjoys singing over you. This is what it says there in verse 17. He will, exult, um, he will exult over you with loud singing. Just think about the God of the universe singing over us. Is that not unimaginable? I mean, wouldn't, you wouldn't believe it unless the Bible said it. Well, what do you hear when the Bible says God sings over you? I mean, you've got to use your imagination here. But you just read that and you don't think you're just going to, oh hum okay he sings over me what's next what else does it say you got to stop and think what what's the volume of God singing is it timid quiet singing he sings loudly and so we're going to be gathered together look who will be gathered verse eighteen I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach those who mourn will come they won't be sad anymore when he gathers us verse 19 behold at that time i will deal with all your oppressors and i will save the lame and gather the outcast i will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth so the outcast the lame the cast aside the marginalized will come they won't be afraid they won't be shunned they won't be shamed anymore and he says they were gathering verse 18 for a festival for a feast Isaiah talks about this feast in chapter 25. He says, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make a feast for all peoples, all the nations. We're told the menu. You want to know what we're going to have? Of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, a feast of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. So there we will be. We'll be at the marriage supper of the Lamb, right? And, and the food is incredible. Red meat, red wine, right? There's no casseroles in heaven, okay? <laughs> Amen? Okay? Yeah, and I, I think uh, I think it's a picture of the blood atonement. It's going to be exciting. Think about the best meal you've ever had. What's the best meal you've ever had? Right, okay, the best food, right? All expenses paid. Right? The best company, right? And there will be gathered. We'll all be given white robes to wear. The Book of Revelation tells us. I think that's a little weird to be honest. Eating dinner in a bathrobe, but whatever. All right, okay. Be white. We'll be white because. Because we're sinless? No. But we're clean in Christ. We're made righteous in Christ. And we, we will, what will we do? What we'll, we, we get there, what are we going to do? We're going to sing. You know that? We're going to sing. Revelation 19 says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of a mighty peal of thunder, crying out loud, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come. We will, we will sing. Now just imagine that you're there, right? And there's Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And there's, you know, there's Gideon and Ezekiel and Josiah, right? And, and there's Sarah and Hannah and... over there's Ruth and Rahab and Andrew and James and Paul and there's John Mark and Barnabas and Timothy and there's Mary and Martha and Magdalene and there's Luther and Augustine and Zwingli and Bunyan and Spurgeon and Judson and, and there's your great, 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 great grandma. You have no idea but she loves Jesus and now you're united and over here are a bunch of people you never heard of who suffered a martyr's death and have incredible stories of God's faithfulness and God says my house will be filled, every chair will be taken and you're there and you visit and you're hearing testimonies of God's faithfulness, how God has worked in their life and then eventually what? Jesus will come out and you'll see his face and your heart will be full of joy and gladness and glory when Jesus smiles at you and you will feel loved like you have never felt before like a groom Looking at his bride like a dad looking at his son come home, and everyone will get quiet. And Jesus will open his mouth and sing over you loudly, unrestrained exaltation. Now, I think as John Piper said, if God spoke and the universe leapt into existence, what will happen when he sings? I trust there will be a new creation within our hearts. In fact, notice the words for singing of God here. The, really, the words in seven, verse 17 are the same words describe what we do in verse 14. So in both verses, you see verse 14 about us, verse 17 about God, singing, rejoicing, exulting, loud. There seems like a mutual rejoicing, that God and his people will mutually rejoice in their love for one another, right? And so there's going to be the words sing. And don't you, don't you wish you know what, we, what he would sing? What What are the lyrics? And maybe he will come out and he will sing, I have betrothed you to me forever. In righteousness and steadfast love and mercy you are mine. And we will sing, and you are our God and our Savior and our Lord. And he will sing, I have cleansed you from all guilt and forgiven all your sin. And you shall be a joy and a praise and a glory to me. And we will sing, who is a forgiving God like you? And he will sing, I make you dwell in safety, and I will rejoice in doing you good with all my heart and all my soul. And we will sing, whom have we in heaven but you? And earth has nothing we desire beside you and he will sing over us again and again and again, you are mine, you are mine, you are mine, and we will sing salvation and glory and honor and dominion belong to our God and to the Lamb. That is your destination, Christian. That is the goal of the gospel, that we might be brought to this God. Do not truncate the gospel by saying the gospel is I'm saved from wrath. Amen, we're saved from wrath. But we're brought to our God and we shall enjoy his loving fellowship forever and ever and ever. And some of you maybe are here thinking, can God really sing over me? Can God really delight over me? Does he know who I am? Yeah, he knows who you are. He does. Does he know where I've been? Yeah. He you know what I've done? Far more than even you do. He knows it all, right? You say, well, how can he sing over me? Well, I think it is Pastor Bullmore who says that we cannot have a singing God or we cannot have a singing Savior without a screaming Savior. And what he means by that is that he will sing Only because 2,000 years ago, on Calvary, he screamed, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was forsaken by God. He screamed from the cross. It was, in every way, a scream from the pit of hell in order that he can sing from the glory of heaven over you. That Christ would receive the eternal anger of God so that we might receive His eternal love. This is God's plan. We can receive that love if we do, as verse 12 tells us. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. I pray that everyone here would not be so foolish to seek refuge in their own works, but that they would seek refuge in the work of Christ for them. And for my Christian brothers and sisters, I, I want you, as we close, we can't hear the song now, but I, I pray that we would, we would know it's coming. I pray that we would know His joy. And that, and that in, in understanding that, our lives would look differently. In fact, look at verse 20 as we end. At that time, see, I will bring you in At that time I will gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes. So this is promised incredible ingathering. This, of course, is hinted at the Jewish exiles returning, but it's fulfilled when Christ returns, and there's this complete redemption. So I want you to see the book of Zephaniah ends very much the way it began. Remember, it began with this cosmic overflow of creation, and now it ends with this other cosmic scene, this one of a glorious recreation, unlike anything we've experienced. He'll gather us. He's going to take us home, right? And our hearts are restless for this. This is what we're made for our hearts are so restless. We are restless people. Don't you remember you couldn't wait to drive? I just got to get my license. And then you couldn't wait to graduate high school. And then you couldn't wait to go to college, and soon after you were in college, you couldn't wait to get out of college. And you couldn't wait till you got a job, and then soon later, you couldn't wait till you stopped having the job and retired. And you couldn't wait till you buy a house, right? And then, Well, you couldn't wait till you get married, and then couldn't wait till you buy your first home, and then you couldn't wait to have a child, and then you couldn't wait for the child to go to school, right? And then you couldn't wait for the child to move out, right? And then you couldn't wait for the child to have, another, have their child so you could have a grandchild, right? And right, we just, we just can't. This is persistent restlessness in us like we have yet to find what we're made for. My brothers and sisters, may I tell you, you are made for Jesus. Right. And it's in Christ That you will find that rest, that peace, that joy. And when he returns on that great day, we will finally be home. Our Father, we long for that day. May it come soon. May our Lord return for his bride. May our Father send him for his children. In the meantime, may we, regardless of the circumstances in our life, have a stability and a joy and a confidence to us because of what we have in Christ and what we will one day receive. We thank you for these great promises. May they be cherished by your people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.